Well, good morning. We are on our second sermon for Advent. And let me just apologize in advance for those of you who think my sermon should match the Advent calendars because it does not. So uh, that was by design. Uh, we are uh, going to talk about this passage, Prepare the Way of the Lord. Last week in our study of Isaiah chapter 9, we saw that the, the circumstances in Israel were, were bleak. If you remember what we, we saw, that the nation was in spiritual darkness and the Assyrians were flooding in from the north, getting ready to overthrow the northern kingdom. And, um, and Isaiah was prophesying all, all of, I'm sorry, not Isaiah. Yeah, Isaiah was prophesying all those things. And um, uh, when Isaiah wrote it, it was about 740 B.C. His ministry started on the year that King Uzziah died. That was 740 B.C. And, and uh, his, the range of his ministry was quite a while. You can see that up on the, on the screen. And, and that's exactly what happened. The Assyrians came in and things just went from bad to worse. You see that the northern kingdom was, was overthrown in 722 B.C., 150 years later or so, 586 B.C. The, the nation of Judah was overthrown. So you have Samaria, the capital of the northern kingdom, destroyed. Then you have Jerusalem and the temple are all destroyed. And all these things have been prophesied that they would happen. Both Judah and Israel were carried off into exile as God said they would. But as God said would happen, um, they were released from captivity by the proclamation of Cyrus, the, the king of Persia. By the way, the 70 years of captivity started in 605 B.C. It was a gradual thing. I'm not going to explain that today. But in that return, there were a couple guys named Zerubbabel and, and uh, Nehemiah. They came back in. They built the temple and the walls of the temple. And, and um, the, the problem was, as they were rebuilding, the second temple was much smaller than Solomon's temple. It also lacked the grandeur and the, the opulence of the first temple. It would be like the difference between a mansion and a shack. That's the difference in the temples. Um, and so what, what the people who saw this remember the prophecy of Isaiah. And Isaiah prophesied that the Messiah would come back. And he talked about the, the, the opulence of the, uh, of the, um, the, the coming temple. And then there was Ezekiel. And Ezekiel was in Babylon just prophesying to the captives in Babylon saying that one day the temple, and he goes on to describe the dimensions of eight chapters. He describes how the temple is just going to be in all its glory. And 150 years later, we have the, the writings of Malachi. And um, what's, uh, what you should understand, and this is the inklings of disappointment that we're going to be talking about today, is that Ezra talks about, now I know I just went through a whole bunch of people, and if you're not familiar with the Old Testament, you're probably, your mind's swirling, I'm sorry. Um, i got a lot to say today, but just just bear with me, will you? The the first inkling of disappointment happened when uh, that see that five sixteen BC when they dedicated the temple. Ezra talks about this, and this is what he said. I'll throw it on the screen be, uh, behind me. All the people shouted a great shout as they praised the Lord, and the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of the fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. 
though many uh, shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish between the sound of joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. And so here you have these older people who saw Solomon's temple in all its glory and opulence, and they're weeping when they see the small foundations of the new temple and and the, the younger people who'd never seen it. And they're shouting for joy just simply because they have a temple. Now, this is a uh, kind of a drawing of what Solomon's temple is. And you can see up here, you can see the, the pillars that we talked about, the, the big basin with all the oxen and stuff. And this is a kind of representation of what the second temple looked like. Is there a difference there or not? There is a massive difference in the sizes of the temples. And so you have these people in the passage that we read today. Now remember, these people are 150 years removed from the building of the temple, roughly. Um, uh, or I'm sorry, the prophecy of the building of the temple in Ezekiel. About 100 years or so after the actual building of the temple. There has been no Messiah has come. They understand that, that the temple itself is so much smaller. And so there's this... And, and, Added to that, uh, the, the temple's not glorious. The Messiah hasn't come. They're being ruled by Persians. Their territory is small. And, and so with all of that considering, they read all these Old Testament passages about what God then has done. What do you think the reaction is going to be? The reaction is found in the passage that we had today. And the react, they had two. And the first one is that they had cynicism. In, in Malachi 2.17, they said, where is the God of justice? They're looking at the Persians. They're looking at everything going on around them. They're looking at how small the temple is. And they're cynical. They're saying, where are all these promises that God has, has given us? Messiah hasn't visited or, or any of that sort of stuff. There's disillusionment. Um, following the rebuilding of the temple, decade after decade, no supernatural mar- uh, event marked the return of the Lord to Zion. And, and so you ask this question. Let me ask this question. Why would people become cynical in a situation like this? Why would they become cynical towards God? It is because, and listen, because this is true of all of us, they construct some notion of what he must do and when he must do it. And if it doesn't happen according to their preconceived notion, they conclude that God has failed. And and that's a natural human condition that we have to guard against is we have these ideas of God that are loosely biblically based, but they're not actually biblical beliefs. And then we say, well, God should do this. And in my view, He should do it here. And when He does neither one, there's disillusionment that follows cynicism. God, why haven't you worked out my marriage issues? Why haven't my children been saved? I've been praying for my children's salvation for 20 years, Lord. Why have they not? Why is there no movement in their hearts? Why do I have these health problems, Lord? And, and Malachi's people were upset because, uh, at God because in their opinion, 
he had not corrected things that they were crying that in their minds were crying for attention. This complaint was their way of expressing unhappiness with with uh, God for not sending the Messiah. Although God demonstrated throughout their nation's history that He would be faithful to His promises, their faith in Him was shaken. And they took God's delay in fulfilling His promise to mean that He was not going to keep His promise. And so they, He let them down. God let me down. Have you ever thought that? God let me down. The second problem followed from the first. And it's also in verse number 17. The second problem is that they became practical atheists. They didn't see the promises of God. And so they began to act like God didn't exist. The priests and the people, they disregarded proper worship. They, they brought crippled and worthless animals and sacrifices to the, to the temple, expecting God to be pleased when what kind of animals did He tell them to bring to the temple? spotless, right? And so, well, God hasn't kept His promises, therefore God must not exist, or God's not going to keep His promises, so He's not relevant to my life, so I'm going to act like He doesn't exist. And that's exactly what they did. You see um, you see it, it written. Look at what he says. You have wearied God. But they say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? And so this is a situation uh, that's going on. And Malachi, get this, Malachi is writing to these people saying, in fact, God has not failed in his promise of a Messiah. They took God's delay in fulfilling His promise to mean that He was not going to keep His promise. Now, we're in a very similar situation. We're in the time between His first coming and His second coming, aren't we? And and it's easy to make the same mistake about His promises. God is a God of grace. Um, and so I look around at all these people who claim to be believers and they're living any way they want without any seeming uh, negative impact upon their life. And all these people who hate God and, and they're living life to the fullest and I want to get in on this and so I'm going to try to start living like them. And we forget the promises of God. We forget the commands of God. And... And in fact, for the people of Malachi's day, the Messiah would come. And the Lord graciously told them how He would come. God, through Malachi, told the people that there would be a messenger and then the Messiah would come. Look at verse number 1. It's, it's, almost, it's like a bright light in this depressing narrative that's going on here. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will, will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And so God lays out for them what's going to happen. When is the Messiah going to come? The first thing he says is that there's a messenger that must come first. God will send a messenger first. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. God really wanted them to know this. If, if, you, um, if you turn to the very end of Malachi, Malachi chapter 4 and verse number 5, we see how we know God really, really wanted them to know it because he says the very last verse of this passage, he says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Now that doesn't sound like a, a messenger, does it? 
It doesn't sound like the same thing that we see here until you begin putting other scriptures together. And I, w- I want to show you one. Turn to Mark chapter 1 and verse number 2. Now, I'm going to warn you, we're going to go to a lot of scriptures today. I'm going to throw a lot of them up on the screen for you if you don't want to turn there. But uh, we're going to connect them all together. Mark chapter 1 and verse number 2. Who is this messenger? Mark says, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet... Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare the way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Then he says, John appeared baptizing. Now, if you're unfamiliar with Christianity, we're talking about John the, John the Baptist. Very good. Baptizing in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And so one more verse, Matthew eleven thirteen, uh, up there behind you says, or behind me, it's actually behind you too. Um, for, but look at the one in, behind me, not the one behind you. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. And if you're willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who is to come. Now let me paint a little picture for you. Malachi was the very last book of the Bible, Old Testament, that was written. His very last verse said, Behold, I send Elijah. And so for 400 years, there was silence. 400 years, there was no prophetic word of the Lord. There was no scripture. There was nothing. And they waited for Elijah. And there was this expectation of Elijah. And finally, this guy burst on the scene and he's baptizing in, in the wilderness in the, in the, the Jordan River. And, and, uh, here we see he is the Elijah. And so he's preparing the way. And that's how they knew. And they would know the timing of the Messiah, remember? When the messenger came preaching in the wilderness in the spirit and the power of Elijah. And can I say this is really, this is really fascinating to me. Not only was he like Elijah in the way that he preached, not only was he like Elijah in his spirit, the guy even dressed like Elijah. Did you know that? There's a funny account. I, it's, it's not funny, but it is. Okay. It's serious, but it's funny when you think about it. In, in, um, Second Kings chapter number one, you don't have to turn there. Ahaziah, who is the son of, of, um, oh great, uh, Ahab, thank, um, Ahab, Ahab and Jezebel. Now remember, Ahab's just a terrible king. And Elijah came on, do you remember the whole prophets of Baal thing, right? Well, well, Ahab has passed on the scene, and Ahaziah's sons, um, um, preaching or uh he's a king and and he's about to die and he sends his messengers he says go find a sorcerer or something somewhere to find out if i'm going to die if i'm going to recover from the sickness and they came back super fast he's like what's going on he they said well we met this guy and and he told told us that you're going to die and he said what did this guy look like and here's what they said they answered him he wore a garment of hair and a belt of leather about his waist. And here's his response. He said, it's Elijah the Tishbite. He knew exactly who it was by the way he was dressed. Well, if you are still in Mark chapter 1, there's a description of how John the Baptist dressed. And that is in verse number 6. He says, now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist 
and ate locusts and wild honey. His diet wasn't quite as nice as Elijah's. I'll grant you that. But that's John the Baptist. And so he's the messenger. Now, what's his message? What is the message that the messenger is going to proclaim? Malachi 3.1. Go back to Malachi 3.1. The messenger gives this message, prepare the way before me. Prepare the way of the Lord. The phrase prepare the way literally means to clear a path. It means to clear a path for the Lord. Now, the Lord is a king. So I've got a question for you. What happens when you get the message that royalty's coming to town or coming to your house? Well, I'm an expert on this because I've watched Downton Abbey. <laughs> and so I know. You clean your silverware. You clean the house. You act like everything's perfect, right? And, and in the days of Israel, the road system was not kind of like, they were more like, uh, Massachusetts roads or something like that or Michigan. And so one of the things that they would do is they would fill up the ruts because the king's riding on a carriage and you don't want the horses to trip and you don't want the carriage to, to be bumpy or anything like that. And so they would clear the way. We see this uh, in Isaiah chapter 40, verse number 3, where he says, A voice cries in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight the desert, the highway from our God. In Isaiah 62.10, he says, Go through, go through the gates, prepare the way for the people. Build up, build up the highway. Clear it of stones. Lift a signal over the peoples. What does all this metaphorical language mean of, of making the road smooth and everything else? Well, when you go to the New Testament, you find out that John's call was a call to repentance. It was a call to bind the parents' hearts to the children. The fathers there could actually be talking about the fathers of Israel, the leaders of Israel. And so John was preparing the way for Jesus Christ, and the way that he was doing it was making them aware of their sinfulness. When you, when you see, uh, the, the, the soldiers and, and all these people coming, he, they said, well, what shall we do? He calls them a bunch of vipers. You remember that? Uh, he, his PR machine didn't work that well. And so vipers and they're all coming and he says, look, you need to quit defrauding people and you need to quit all these different things that you're doing, these evil things. And he's making them aware of their sins. And it was a call to salvation. It was a call to repentance for forgiveness of sins. John is a messenger who gets people to think about their sin. And once the messenger comes and prepares a way, then the Messiah will come. Look at verse number th- uh, one of Malachi three again, because the Lord will come. The Lord will come, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And what does this man do? We'll look at verse number three. I'm sorry, verse number two and three. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. And he will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver, and he will purify the souls of Le- or sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. So the Messiah, when the Messiah comes, he's going to sit as a refiner of silver. And, and realize this. Realize that a refiner 
back then, we think of a refinery like a, a, an oven. We think of the giant portions, right? A refiner back then would be working with a real small... Haven't you ever seen the coins and the earrings and things out of silver and gold? They're small, aren't they? Tiny. So a refiner is working in small amounts, carefully removing the dross. And he says when the Messiah comes, he's going to carefully pay attention and remove the dross because he cares about the holiness of his people. He's he's like a launderer. A fuller is a launderer, somebody who does laundry. And he's like the soap who purifies the garment. And how is he going to do this? How is he going to purify his people? Well, we can go all the way to the end of the Bible and we'll see. At the end of the Bible, in Revelation, chapter number uh, 7, we see this. And after this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands. Okay, they're clothed how? White robes. That's symbol of purity. That's that fuller soap, right? And then verse number 13 of the same um, chapter says, Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white. How? By the blood of the Lamb. You see the Messiah. He's purifying His people. He's a refiner's fire. And He's purifying their garments. And one of the ways that He purifies the garments of His people is by shedding His own blood. What a sacrifice the Messiah made, huh? He's going to uh, refine men by giving His life for them. But there's a second thing He's going to do. Look at the next verse. He says, Then I will draw near to you for judgment. This is verse number 4. I will draw near to you for judgment, and I will be swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers and against all who swear falsely. And against those, this is verse number 5, I'm sorry. And those who oppress the hired worker, his wages, the widow, the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner. And do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Now, this list, we read this list, and we don't think much about it, do we? We read. Does anybody here know a sorcerer other than Harry Potter? Nobody knows the sorcerer, right? And so we just kind of skip over it, except that when you look at this list, you know what's interesting about it? These are the same condemnations that Jesus gave to the Jewish leaders in the Gospels. This is how he describes them. Christ condemned them for taking false oaths. Remember, uh, don't swear by the gold of the temple. Remember all those types of things? He's talking to religious leaders. Yeah. Don't claim to your parents that I can't take care of you, mom and dad, because the money I was going to use to take care of you is now for the temple. Um, He condemned them for oppressing the poor in Israel with their corrupt worship. It was the religious leaders that Christ said was robbing widows of their houses. And that's in the same passage. Now realize, ignore the chapter break there because he says, you rob widows of their houses. And the very next verse says, and there was a widow giving her might. And remember what Jesus said? She gave all she had. They were robbing that widow. 
exactly what Malachi 3, 5 is talking about. And, and they oppressed the sojourner. It was to the religious leaders that Jesus looked to and said, you, and told the parable of the Good Samaritan, remember? They were the ones that it said the, the priest and the Levite walked around the man. It was the Samaritan who came and ministered to me. He said, you're oppressing the sojourner in the land as well. They rejected the Messiah because they didn't want that kind of Messiah. And as a result, the Lord judged them through the Roman army and their temple has never been built. Now, I want to go back to something in verse number one that I intentionally skipped over. And uh, it's, it's a beautiful thing. Go back to verse number one, if you will, Malachi 3.1. So when Christ came, He purified His own. He judged them, those who were not of His own. But I want to want to you see something else. There's a little phrase here. Look at verse number 1. He says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to His temple. Now, when did this happen? Well, many commentators, I read um, many commentators who asserted that this is referring to when Jesus made his triumphal entry. Remember what he did? He came in on his triumphal entry. He cleared the money changers out of the temple, and then he began to teach about pure worship. Remember that? And I was just thinking about that. I, I don't think this is what Malachi was talking about. And the reason I don't think that is because Jesus had been to the temple several times, hadn't he? So what is, what, is he, what is he talking about? Was I was thinking back about the temple. Remember, the temple is God's dwelling place. It's symbolic of God's dwelling place, isn't it? So in the Old Testament, did God indwell things? And the, and the answer is yes. In, in Exodus, the very last chapter of the book of Exodus, and you do not have to turn there, it records the dedication of the tabernacle. And this is what it says. In um, verses 34 to 38. And then the cloud covered the, the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle throughout all their journeys. Whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, they did not set out until the, the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day. And listen, the fire was in it by night in the sight of the house of Israel through all their journeys. And so they had this mobile house, this tent for God to dwell in symbolically as they, they went through the wilderness. And, and at night there was fire over that tabernacle. During the day it was so hot in Sinai that God covered it all with his presence and, and kept them out of the heat of the day. And then you fast forward uh, uh, 430 years to the dedication of the temple by Solomon. Do you remember that? And now remember, this is the temple of temples, according to the Jews. And you read in Second Chronicles chapter number 7, as soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed it. Uh, the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priest could not enter the house of the Lord because of the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. Now that temple was destroyed, wasn't it? Okay, so they built another temple, Zerubbabel's temple. We read a little bit about it in Ezra. 
And I want to go back and, and just think about this for just a minute. Now remember, in between the destruction of Solomon's temple and, and Zerubbabel's temple, Ezekiel gives this grand vision of what the temple is going to be like. And so this is what Ezra says about the building of Zerubbabel's temple. And they finished the building by decree of God of Israel, by the decree of Cyrus and Darius, Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar, in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. Is there any glory of the Lord there? Is there any fire? There's nothing. And the Israelites knew it. Now what we see, it seems that when the Lord indwells His temple, there's fire involved. Is there any place in the New Testament that that happens? The answer is yes, in fact. Acts chapter number 2 on the day of Pentecost. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And listen, Divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. Does that not sound just like the dedication of the tabernacle in the temple? Rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak to one another in tongues, and the Spirit gave them utterance on the day. Listen, folks, this is exciting. On the day of Pentecost, 2,000 years ago, the Lord came suddenly to His temple. You are God's temple. 1 Corinthians 3.16 Do you not know that you are God's temple and God's Spirit dwells in you? The Lord came to His temple 2,000 years ago and guess what? He's still in His temple. He hasn't left. The power and the glory of the Lord is still in this temple. And it's in you and it's me. And when we gather for corporate worship, He's here with all of us. And He's, He's, He's with us. And then when we leave from here, His temple goes throughout all the world and it's all around the world. And God is indwelling His his temple and, and some people look at this and they long for the spectacular moving of the Holy Spirit that you see on the day of Pentecost. But the New Testament is clear that the means that the Lord uses is the word preached and read and heard and the fellowship of the saints to work in his new temple. Now, as we think about that, I want to close by just asking this question. How do we respond to the fact that the Lord is indwelling His temple right now? How do we dwell? How do we, like the people uh, in Malachi's day, how are we to think about this? Well, number one, let me give you something. Number one, rejoice because the Lord is doing what? What did He say He was going to do when He dwelled His temple? He's refining you. He's, he's working as a refiner. He's bringing the trials your way, the fire trials your way, to carefully refine you. And sometimes those trials are painful, and sometimes the result of the trials is painful. What do I mean by that? There are things that are trials that we don't think of as trials. Let let me go back to the Old Testament for just a minute. Remember King Hezekiah? 
King Hezekiah uh, was told that he was going to die. His sickness was unto death. And he, he pleaded with the Lord, and the Lord gave him more years of life. But one thing about Hezekiah, the Bible says, is that he was, he was almost as rich as Solomon in his riches. His glory of his kingdom was very glorious. In those last 16 years of his life, what we see is that the riches and the life that God gave him, they were the trials, and he failed. Because he trusted in those riches and he trusted in that life and he brought the Babylonians in and showed them the glories of his riches. We're the richest people on the face of the earth. Are you trusting in your riches or are you trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ for your life, for your spiritual life? Slowly, Christ is removing impurities of sin. He's transforming your character into Christ-likeness. And while it seems like it's going very slowly, praise God that one day it's going to happen suddenly, isn't it? And you will be completely transformed. When you are in glory of heaven, you will be clothed with the perfect robes of righteousness, purified in the blood of Jesus Christ in heaven. And so we can, dear Christian, we can rejoice that God is refining us. Oh, to God, that He would refine me more and more. I always, I'm going to, this is not in my sermon text, okay. I bet I'm a wimp. And I always pray, Lord, Lord, make me more like Christ, but do it in a positive way through your word and not through trials as much as you can, right? Number two, proclaim the gospel. As you proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, there are some who are going to hear and believe and the temple is going to spread further and further. And there are some who are going to ignore, mock, or even persecute. And Malachi chapter 4 and verse number 5 said that he, God will draw near to them for judgment and that He will be a swift witness against them. It may not seem like it at this time, but the God, because the God of this world has blinded their eyes and it seems that the church is weak. It seems that the church is losing its influence in the culture and it is, but it's not getting weaker. Because the work of the Lord is quiet. It starts like a mustard seed, and the Bible says it grows to a a full tree. The Bible says that it does silent work like leaven in a loaf of bread. God is at work, and His kingdom is spreading, and His church is getting stronger. And many times we don't see the work. The temple of Malachi's day and of Jesus' day was destroyed because God intended to build a new and greater temple. Do you remember that? Remember those religious leaders? They rejected Jesus Christ. Christ, and he said, not one stone will be laid upon another. And, and 30, 40 years later, in 70 AD, the Romans came in and destroyed their temple. They rejected Jesus Christ. And I can say this beyond a doubt. If we trust in Christ, if, if we have repented of our sins and trust in Him as our Savior, He is making you more pure and making you more like Jesus Christ. But dear person sitting here today, if you are ignoring Christ, if you're living your life like He doesn't exist, and you're, you're mocking Christians, and, and you look down upon Christians, and you, you don't want to have anything to do with Jesus Christ, all may seem to be doing well now, but there's going to come a swift final judgment. And so my plea for you is to get right with Him today. And then the last thing that we can do, and and this is just a very simple application, we can look for His coming. We can look for it. 
Will he come back suddenly? The answer is yes. Will there be signs of his coming? The answer is yes. But our job, our job is to look for the coming of Jesus Christ. The message of the New Testament is keep your eyes on him. Look for him. He's coming back. The end is great. The in-between may be a little bit tough. In the end, He's coming. I'm going to leave you with these words from Revelation 22. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay to each one for what he has done. I'm the Alpha and Omega, the first and last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those, listen, blessed are those who wash the robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life, that they may enter the city by the gates, outside of the dogs, the sorcerers, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. But praise be to God, if He has washed your garments, you are entitled to eat from the tree of life. The messenger came. The people were beleaguered, but the messenger came. And then the Messiah came suddenly. You may feel beleaguered today. It may feel like things are pressing in from every direction. And you may think, God, are your promises actually true? Are you really going to do what you say you're going to do? Can I tell you the answer is yes. Yes. Yes, it may not be in your timing. But he will and it will be glorious. Lord, we thank You for the Word of God. We thank You for uh, the fact that every promise of Yours will come true. We saw it in living color with between the book of Malachi today and the Gospels. And one day we will see it in living color with spiritual eyes and physical eyes that see the coming of our Lord in clouds of glory with all of His saints. Lord, purify us. Cleanse our garments. Give us eyes to focus on the coming Messiah. Give us eyes that averted away from all the temporal pleasures, the temporal temptations, and the sinfulness of this world. Give us eyes, Lord, to, to hope in You. Give us eyes to understand Your Word. Give us eyes to, um, to search the Scriptures for all of Your promises. Give us a hunger for Your righteousness. Lord, strengthen us this day. And those in the hearing today who may not be believers and do not know You at all, I pray for their salvation. In Christ's name, Amen.